Well, let's turn together now to 1 Peter, and we're going to be talking together today about knowing Jesus. Hear the words of God, 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To know Jesus is the greatest, most wonderful, most satisfying relationship anyone could ever have. This is the greatest treasure imaginable to know Jesus Christ. And this is true even when we're called upon to suffer for Jesus in a hostile world. That's the context of 1 Peter. Peter's writing to suffering Christians about their joy in knowing Jesus. Now let's talk about Peter again for a moment. Wasn't Peter one of the most privileged men ever to walk the earth? I mean, a common man, no doubt, a fisherman when Jesus called him. But think about the great privilege Peter had, along with the others, to walk with Jesus every day for three years. To eat with him, to be at his feet for every sermon, to witness every miracle. And think about this. And then to be there as one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a privileged life, at least in those three years, that Peter had. So, Peter's belief really rested on a lot of sight with Jesus. But Peter's writing to people like us who who had not seen Jesus with their own eyes, but yet had believed in the same way Peter had. Now, we're going to talk about our, our role is the same way. We haven't seen him yet, but we believe, and we're even blessed in this condition. Remember what Jesus told Thomas after the resurrection Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love this as we're reading Peter's words to these first recipients there in the Roman Empire. He's not acting like, oh, too bad, you missed Jesus. He's not acting like Jesus was this great one that he got to know, but it's too late for you. Too bad you weren't around when Jesus was on the earth. No, he's speaking of knowing Jesus as a thrilling relationship of faith with the risen Savior. He knows that his readers know and enjoy the same Jesus that Peter knows. Notice again, verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. So let's talk together today about how life-transforming it is to know Jesus. Now this takes us into another reminder of God's nature and his attributes, that our God is spirit. Our God created the material world, but he is separate and distinct from the material world that he created. Our God is not dependent upon a body. The triune God is spirit, not material, which makes it amazing when God the Son came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be one of us in order to redeem us out of our sin and from the impending judgment. But here comes a common question. How can I believe in something... How can I believe in someone that I cannot see? This sometimes is an objection to becoming a follower of Jesus. But I want you to see with me that actually we believe in a lot of things and a lot of people that we don't see. Let me give you two illustrations of this. For me, I have a lot of faith in the people who maintain the railroad crossing arms. I don't know these people. I've never seen them. 
I know nothing of their credentials. But when I'm driving down Mountain Road, which I do a lot because of where I live, and I cross over the tracks, if the guards are down, if the arms are down, I stop. But when they're up, I'm not like a school bus driver. Clearly, they're mandated to stop and wait and look. I don't. If the gates are open, I drive through. That's a lot of faith, isn't it? From my life experience, that's never let me down. I've never had a close call when the gates are up. I'm trusting in somebody maintaining that system that I have no idea who they are. But maybe a better illustration is when we fly. I used to fly a lot. And, and most of the time, you didn't see the pilot before you took off. Sometimes you see the pilot after thanking you for the flight. But so many times getting on the plane, just confident there's a pilot up there. I mean, it's clearly not a drone. And so, yeah, there's a guy there. But here's what, I, here's what I'm saying is I have confidence in this man that I've never seen or this woman I've never seen, confident that they are trained as a pilot, that they actually had good scores in flight school rather than bad scores. And so, so I'm able to have confidence in somebody I don't see. I think part of it is because I trust the source. So if I flew airlines like Delta or KLM, I thought I'm trusting that those companies vetted these people, trained these people, and I'm in good hands, though I can't not see them. Now, I have to say, I didn't have the same level of confidence on some of the foreign airlines that I flew. When I flew in Bangladesh once, uh, still got on the plane, I had a, a level of confidence, but not nearly as much as some other airlines. And then flying in Central Asia, uh, there were some scary moments there. I remember the time when we got on the flight with my family and the flight attendant took the vodka up to the pilot before the flight. <laughs> and we stayed on the plane. It just seemed normal there. That's just how they do it. I think it maybe it steadied his hands. Like, I don't want to withhold it from him. So we stayed on the flight. But we have confidence in those we don't see, especially when we feel like, I think there's some credible, credible sources behind them. Well, I want us to see that we have confidence in the reality of Jesus in the same way. We have, I have no doubt in the existence of Jesus and no doubt that he is everything he claimed that he would be because we have compelling evidence to that fact. Even if we just talk about God himself, that he exists. So I'm one of those that does not secretly think that those who believe in evolution are right. I don't, I don't have any struggle in my heart. I do not believe that they are correct. I do not believe that a grand random explosion in space is the best evidence for why we're here and everything that I see exists. I don't think that's the best evidence. I do not believe that nothing exploded in space and created everything. I see a lot of complexity in the creation. I see order. I see a plan that points to a planner. Even if we were just look at one element of biology and just look at human reproduction, and that screams to us, this is not random. There is a plan for this. This is how God designed this. It's very intricate. But then also things that people have pointed out through the years that evolution can't explain. The existence of love that human beings can have for one another. The ability of human beings to sacrifice for other people. How does that fit into an evolutionary system? Some people have even looked at the arts, like where does music fit in? How, how come human beings are so musical? Or how about this universal impulse to worship? You go to any culture on earth and though they might not be worshiping who they ought to be worshiping, there's something in human beings where they recognize, I owe worship, I owe trust to somebody else. I need help from somebody else. Even the most ardent atheist put in enough pressure and enough fear will often impulsively start and instinctively looking, I, I need somebody to help me other than myself. So here's my contention. We're not believing in Christ in spite of superior evidence to the contrary. 
but we're believing because there's compelling evidence to the existence of our God. There's a creation that so obviously points to a creator. So there's compelling evidence, but also there are credible witnesses. We believe like these first century believers who hadn't seen because of credible witnesses. So we could say, well, the Bible itself gives credible testimony to our God. We can look at this Bible and all it affirms about God. And we say, well, how do I know this Bible is true? We can look at a number of reasons why we believe this. The archaeological evidence is so helpful here that over and over again through the centuries, the Bible is validated by what we see found in archaeology. Also thrilling are those fulfilled prophecies that this is miraculous, how God foretold centuries ahead of time and then fulfilled those prophecies. We have every reason to be confident in the authority and the truthfulness of Scripture. There's also the wisdom of Scripture. We think when you live your life through faith in Jesus Christ, though we all are faulty in it, but as we try to conform our lives to the wisdom of Scripture, we say, you know, this works. And then we see the wreckage in lives where people spurn the Word of God and its wisdom, think, I'm going to launch out and do it my way, and then all the dysfunction and despair. So we're not sitting there thinking, I think, I think the Word of God is wrong. I think I want to do what they're doing. Oh, no, we find that there's joy in the biblical way as the Holy Spirit helps us to live it out. But also the apostles themselves. We're talking about credible witnesses to Christ. The apostles themselves. These like Peter who were eyewitnesses and they tell us of what they experienced with him. And don't you find their testimonies so credible? I love how they're ordinary. I love how the Bible describes how common they were and even their embarrassing mistakes. I've thought about this a lot through the years, that if I were going to make up a religion that I wanted to dupe people into believing, I wouldn't have picked the first 12 disciples. I mean, this was not be the type of guys that you would think would, would make everybody impressed and jump on board. And then their failures. I mean, one of the 12 betrayed Jesus. And we have that in Judas. Then you have Peter, who's, again, the Holy Spirit's using to write this. He was the man on the night of Jesus' arrest who denied Jesus three times. That's recorded in our scriptures because that is exactly what happened. These are, these are real people with real flaws. Even the embarrassing things like this. Before the crucifixion, you have the disciples on one occasion arguing among themselves. I think it was more than one occasion. They argued among themselves, which one's the greatest? Isn't that embarrassing? And yet included in the scripture, these are real people who are giving credible testimony to what they had seen and heard in Jesus. Now, somebody might counter and saying, well, you're believing a lot based on a book, and I would never do that. But isn't this the testimony of many who say they're now atheists? Maybe they grew up in church. They say, I went off to college, and I heard this professor, and I read this textbook, and now I don't believe. That's a lot of faith in a book, in a textbook, in a mere man or mere woman spouting off things in a classroom that they cannot prove or validate we're just saying we have better evidence for our belief in God, a better basis for our belief. And beyond this, we have experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. Many of us have been his followers for decades now, and we find, oh, there's no relationship like the living God that I actually know. I have a relationship with him. He is the bedrock of my life. Many of you could give this same testimony. You often feel his presence, his joy, his conviction, his correction, his, his peace, his power in your life over and over again through, through the years. We see his works in us and all around us. And so we know him, even though our eyes have not yet seen him. But that day is coming when Jesus returns. So now this, to know Jesus then changes everything about your life. And so now let's look at this, what Peter brings up here. To know Jesus first is to love Jesus. To know Jesus is to love Jesus. Back to verse 8. Though you've not seen him, 
You love him. Peter here commends these believers in first century Roman Empire. He says, you know him and you actually love him. Though their eyes had never seen Jesus, they loved him in the same way that Peter loved them. And Peter had seen Jesus. Don't you know that Peter did indeed love Jesus? There's that interesting account after the resurrection when Peter went fishing again and they see Jesus on the shore. I love this. It says that Peter put on his outer garment and then jumped in the water to be with Jesus. All that enthusiasm to be with Jesus. They had breakfast together with the risen Savior. And then that interesting time when Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Remember that occasion? And Peter's like, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep and that. Second time, Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. And then that third time, and the scripture says Peter was very sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And once again, he affirmed his love for Jesus. And some have said, well, maybe that was because he denied Jesus three times, gave him a chance to affirm his love for Jesus three times. I don't know. But we certainly know this. This was very real. Peter was being very sincere in his declaration. Oh, Jesus, I do love you. And we love Jesus well. To know him is, is to love him. Can you imagine somebody says, well, I know Jesus, but I don't really have much going on in my heart for him. When you are among those who have heard the gospel, that Jesus lived perfectly, he died sacrificially, was raised from the dead for you, and he offers you forgiveness of all your sins. He offers you heaven forever, and you say, I'm just mildly approving of him. That doesn't make any sense. To know him, to experience salvation in him, is to actually love him. So we respond to his love with faith, marked by profound love. We can say it this way. When you know Jesus, you have real affection for Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again, if you don't have affection, love for Jesus, something is seriously off if you say you know him. In fact, Jesus confronted one of his churches in the book of Revelation. The church at Ephesus had grown cold in their love for Jesus. Here's how it's recorded in Revelation 2, verses 3 through 5. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So to love Jesus is to have real affection for him, and it'll show up also in your desire to follow him and obey him. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let's pause right here and let me ask, can you truthfully say, oh, I love, I love Jesus. I don't just believe he existed, but I, I love him. I love him because he first loved me. And so the first thing I want us to see is to know Jesus is to love Jesus. Secondly, to know Jesus is to trust Jesus. Verse 8 again. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This word believe is the word pistuo in the Greek language. It means to believe, to have faith in, to trust, to be firmly persuaded, to depend on him. So we don't just believe in his existence. We actually have our trust in him. So among the people that I believe exist, I believe that a man named Elon Musk exists. Seems credible to me to see him on the news a good bit. 
He's an inventor. Uh, he has electric cars and rockets and, and all the, a lot of other cool things that he does. I believe he exists, but I can't say that I believe in him. I don't have any trust in him. It's no knock on him, but my life is not built on him. I don't have confidence in him. He's a, he's a mere man. But let me ask you, is that how you relate to Jesus? When you say that you believe in Jesus, is it like, well, I, yeah, I believe in him like I believe in some famous people. Or I believe in Jesus like you believe in some other historical figures. Like I believe in, I believe in George Washington. I believe in Gandhi. I believe in Winston Churchill. And they did some noble things. And I believe in Jesus in that category. If that's the type of belief we have, that's an insufficient faith. That's certainly not a saving faith. James calls that out in James 2.19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So no, we believe in him and trust in him totally. When you walked in here just a little while ago, you sized up where you were going to sit. And I know it's complicated finding your every other row and finding the distance. But, but one of the things you didn't question was whether or not the chair would hold you. You, you know from life experience, this is the type of chair that's going to hold me up. And you, you went and sat down on it. You, you're resting it. In fact, I'm looking around and I don't see anybody helping the chair hold you up. You're fully confident. You're resting in the chair. The chair's doing the work. And this is a picture of what we do when we come to faith in Jesus. I look at Jesus and I put all of my faith in him. My salvation is resting in him, what he accomplished for me. And I'm not contributing anything to that. But let me ask you this. Are there any gaps in your belief in Jesus? Yes, you believe him for your soul. Many of you, you know, he's going to take care of me when I die and take me to heaven. But do you trust him now? Are you one who can say, oh, I believe him with my health that he'll take care of me. He'll allow things in and out, but I'm trusting him with my health. I'm going to trust him with my finances. I'm going to trust him with my relationships, with my needs and my wants. I'm trusting with my eternal soul, but I'm going to walk with a life of trusting him. That's how we move with him. To know him is to trust him. But you might be here and you say, well, my, my trust is pretty weak. I do trust him with my eternal soul, but I am so worried about so many other things. Listen, you can grow in your faith. And one of the ways to do that, we've talked about before, is to meet with God regularly, daily, with an open Bible. Your faith is stirred and nurtured and grown through being in the scriptures. That's why you own a Bible, that as you meet with God with an open Bible, that your faith can grow. By the way, that's how your love can grow too. We talked about knowing Jesus is to love him. And you think, I, I don't know that I love him like I should. I used to love him more. How am I going to get that back? Get into his presence. Just like in your human relationships. If you don't spend time with people, your affection for them can grow dim, grow cold. So get into the presence of God with an open Bible. Read for relationship. Read to respond that you might trust him more. And that you might love him more. And so to know Jesus is to love Jesus. To know Jesus is to trust in Jesus. And how about this? To know Jesus is to be overjoyed in Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And here it is. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I love this word rejoice in the original language. It's defined this way. To exalt to leap for joy, to show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive and ecstatic joy and delight. That's a strong word, isn't it? Another definition of this word in the original language speaks of it being a, a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. 
So we talk about knowing Jesus. This is not a dull and boring relationship. This is spoken of in the the great terms of rejoicing with great joy that you can't even possibly explain. So what is it, though, if you find yourself, well, I'm bored with Jesus. I don't have anything of excitement for Jesus. I'm fine with just thinking about Jesus one hour a week and even then reluctantly, and I'll come back and endure another thought about Jesus next week. What's that? Well, that would be an indicator that very likely you've not been born again. Because to know Jesus is to love him, is to trust him, is to be overjoyed in him according to the scriptures. Now, I don't say that with condemnation. That was my existence prior to coming to know Jesus at 17. Just knew he was there, believed in him like an important historical figure, hoped he would help me on occasion. But no, no delight in him. That whole concept of being delighted in Jesus was foreign to me until I came to know Jesus. So let me ask you, are you flat toward Jesus. Now, some people are flat toward everything, and we've talked about this before. You could go through depression where you, you find nothing delightful, nothing makes you glad, and, and you, you can get help for that. But if you say, no, I'm happy about a lot of things. I have a gladness in my soul for a lot of things. I'm excited about a lot. Jesus is just not among the things that excites me. There would be an alarming problem in your life because to know him really is to rejoice in him. Why rejoice in Jesus? We have reasons ample enough right here in 1 Peter. We've seen this, that in Christ we are elect exiles. Yes, an exile, that's not so great, but I'm an elect. I'm a chosen exile in Christ. We've seen here in 1 Peter, we've been born again. We have a living hope. We have this inheritance that's imperishable and unfading and undefiled. We've been told that we have God himself guarding us for this glorious salvation that's going to be revealed. So the right response to Jesus and meeting him as your savior is to be overjoyed. Look at it again. Rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is a joy that makes you want to move. Well, you know my personality. We've been together for a long time now. And, and you know that I do have passion for the Lord, but I'm a pretty reserved person. And I'm like this everywhere I go. So even at football games. So I've been to some Carolina Panthers games through the years, earlier with my father. And then a few years ago, my middle daughter, a Carolina Panthers fan, wanted to go for her 16th birthday to see a game in person. And so we went and it was fun, except for the Philadelphia Eagles dominated the game. They went on to win the Super Bowl that year. But during the game, the Carolina Panthers stadium, they would blast out a cheer that if you're a Panthers fan, you were supposed to enter in with. And they'd throw it up on the screen. And here was the cheer. Keep pounding. And you were supposed to join in. Keep pounding. And so my daughter, who's a little more extroverted than I am, she's, she's all over that. She's wanting to belt it out with, with the other fans. And she looks over at me and I'm just standing there. I wanted the Panthers to keep pounding. They were getting pounded. I wanted them to keep pounding, but I figure the other people are screaming loud enough, you know, and they know they ought to be pounding down there. And the the, the whole screen's telling keep pounding. It's not my personality just to let loose and let it rip at a, at a football game. Now, when it comes to Jesus, I am more demonstrative with my passion for Jesus, but it's typically not in here where I'm going to dance around or do something. But, but nevertheless, when we're singing, Chip, man, my heart's, I, I resonate. I love watching you sweat up here. I love this. It's so good. But it's going on in here. But here's how it typically looks in my life. But we're, we're, we're talking about that word rejoice. It has bodily movement in it. You know, it's part of it. But um, oftentimes it's in private. So sometimes it's, it's really on a weekly basis when I'm studying in preparation for these moments. And then when the message comes together and I feel like this is the message God wants me to have for his people. And when I'm getting up from my desk to go to the printer to get the sermon, I'll sometimes do this. Yes. 
thank you, thank you, God, you did it again. You did it again, thank you. Or sometimes it's in those moments when, when turning away from temptation, here's an opportunity to sin, but no, I'm trusting Jesus, I'm going this way, and just to walk away with a sense of victory, yes, yes, thank you, freedom, not in bondage, how, how wonderful. Or coming away from a gospel conversation with somebody that went well, and trusting that seed was planted, to get back in the car and drive away and just go, yes. And so there's this, this overjoyed sense in the presence of God and for the goodness of God. So whether you're loud or quiet, irrelevant. Whether you're an extrovert or introvert, irrelevant. But, but what is going on in your heart in regards to Jesus? To know him is to love him. To know him is to trust him. To know him really is to be overjoyed in him. And, and here's the context of 1 Peter. Even in our trials, even when you have trials because of Jesus, I mean, it's hard enough when you have trials. I know Jesus, why is he letting these trials into my life? But there will be trials that you will only get because you love Jesus. And our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for his name quite brutally, they have trials because of Jesus. And, and as we've been talking about, and as we feel like this book is preparing us for, we're ready for whatever that looks like here. So, so here's the question. How can Peter talk about rejoicing, being overjoyed for Jesus when you suffer? Well, this is because our joy is deeper than our circumstances. Our circumstances are rough, they're real, but we have a joy that's not dependent upon our circumstances. I think about this when we go to the beach. Some of you are beach-going people like me. You like to go to the beach on occasion. And, and when I go to the beach, I like to get in the water, but I don't go out too deep because I know if I go out too deep, I'm going to start hearing that Jaws music. I'm going to be thinking about a shark coming to get me. So I'm really a knee-deep kind of guy at the beach, typically. That's, that's my comfort level. But the problem with knee-deep is that's where those waves are crashing you. It's so violent. It's knocking you down. So you push out a little deeper. I, I, I'll go waist-deep. Okay, this is good. And even chest-deep. And the beauty of being out that deep is then when the waves are crashing, you ever done this? You can just dunk under. You go under the water and let the waves crash over you. It's remarkable how peaceful it is when you go under the water, go under the waves. So this, for me, is a bit of a picture of what it's like. Yes, there are waves crashing in my life. There are things that make us cry, things that make us fret at times. And yet, my joy is not dependent on those things. There is a depth of joy in Jesus Christ that is independent even of the, the circumstances of my life. I find that in Jesus. Even as the tide pulls on us, and even as violence comes our way, Oh, there is a deep, deep abiding joy in Jesus. Here's another reason for joy here. We're told there's an outcome of our faith. Verse 9, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here it is, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you need a reason to rejoice in Jesus. He has saved my eternal soul. I don't have to fear condemnation. Jesus already took my condemnation on the cross. I've been told there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have been saved, and this is going to have its culmination when Jesus comes again. How wonderful is this? And then real quickly, one final one, to know Jesus is to be in awe of Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be, to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. 
Did you notice he brings up prophets? He brings up angels and how they are really in awe of what God is doing for us in his grace and mercy. Here were these prophets who prophesied centuries before and they wanted to know, hey, when is this going to happen when the Messiah comes? And who is it going to be? They knew he was going to suffer. They knew there would be subsequent glories, but they didn't know when. And so they became convinced, all right, this must not be our lifetime. This Savior is going to come after our time. And indeed he came there in the first century. And we live in these days of knowing when he came and who he is. And, and so there is awe in that. The prophets wanted to see the things that you and I get to enjoy ourselves right now. And don't you love it? Even it says in verse 12, these are things in which angels long to look. Don't you know that this was quite amazing to the angels who know God in all of his glory to see God's plan involve having mercy toward rebels like us. That Jesus would leave the perfections of heaven and become one of us. The incarnation must have been amazing to the angels when they saw that be the plan of God unfolding. The crucifixion of Jesus, that God the Son would die on a cross. How amazing to the angels. The resurrection, the indwelling of the Spirit, that we get to be temples of the Holy Spirit here. That God would be so patient with imperfect believers like us in sanctifying us day after day, year after year. How about the angels being amazed at God's withholding judgment? God's patience on bringing judgment. They know that judgment's coming and the return of Christ is coming and, and them just to be amazed at that plan. And so you and I make sure that we're not taking any of this for granted. We should be in awe of this amazing love and plan of God to pour out his grace toward us. So, so here's the final question. Do you know Jesus? And you need to know Jesus. Jesus came for this purpose. And so today, would you repent and turn away from a materialistic worldview? that you might trust in Jesus? Would you turn away from an atheistic worldview that you might know and trust in Jesus? Would you lay aside any sin that you've been craving and chasing? Let that go. The Bible word is repent and turn to Jesus and put all of your trust in him because he died for your sins and was raised from the dead. And then Christian, would you grow in your love for him? Would you grow in your confidence for him? Would you grow in your delight in him? Because to know Jesus is to love him. To know Jesus is to trust him. To know Jesus is to be overjoyed in him. And to know Jesus is to be in awe of him. Would you pray with me?